the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Shipping has about eight years to set its course for success or failure on the path to decarbonisation. It may be the defining challenge of the next half century, but the decisions taken now are the ones that matter. And that's why we've seen a slew of commitments, declarations and pledges being hastily pumped out of the industry with some urgency. But how do you set a strategy with so much uncertainty? The fuels, the infrastructure, the regulations, even the demand is ultimately a matter of guesswork for ship owners right now. When the Merce McKinney Moller Centre for Zero Carbon Shipping did a study of ship owners' actual commitments last month, they found that only 35% had clearly expressed an emissions target to be net zero by 2050 or had committed to IMO targets. Now that's not because ship owners are a bunch of reckless environmental pirates. Far from it, I would argue. Well, at least in most cases. It's because they exist in a grey area right now where decision-making is extremely risky. The ambitions being set by the coalitions of public and private actors, they are important. They're an important first step to initiate policy changes and guide corporate transitions. But ambition must be followed by immediate action to achieve these climate goals. The ultimate test of the impact of these global pledges is how they play out within the shipping companies themselves. So for this week's podcast, I've invited someone who has been tasked with making those difficult decisions. I want to understand how a shipping company sets an ambitious strategy for decarbonizing while not knowing so many of the factors that are ultimately going to determine the outcome of their decisions. Susanna Germino is the head of decarbonization and environmental compliance at Swire Shipping. She is one of these people that is setting the agenda for a significant fleet at both Swire Shipping's container operations and Swire Bulk, two very different shipping companies. She is engaged in all of those progressive coalitions that you've heard me talk about on the podcast over recent years. She's leading projects around methanol. She looks at partnerships. She looks at investments, collaboration, green corridors, all of those practical and extremely difficult commercial decisions that stem from a desire to decarbonize a company that, like the rest of us, exists within the grey area right now. So I started by asking her why it is so difficult to be an ambitious ship owner when it comes to making decisions about decarbonization, a process we all know that has to happen very quickly. What I think is very difficult at the moment is for uh, shipping people to understand that there's not even a plan. I mean, you can have a strategy, you can have a roadmap, you can look at alternative fuels, but do I have an idea or or me or any professional of decarbonization of how we're going to do this to the detail? No. And we have to be able to live in that gray area of uh, the ambiguity of, you know, things could still change. Maybe there is suddenly a, a, an option for a carrier of hydrogen that is better than ammonia and better than methanol. So, I mean, it's it's evolving and your strategy has to evolve and adapt to it. What I think it is important is for companies to commit, to, to, to pledge, to, you know, IMO, that is the minimum that you can do, right? It's regulatory aspects. So you can say, okay, I will do the same as IMO and I will be 70% reduction of carbon intensity by 2050. I think that's what is important because at least it shows companies, uh, it shows the world that you are ready to make the first step. And then how do you get to the roadmap after that? 
it is not an easy task, but you know, start little. Start with looking at biofuels. What do you need to do? You know, are you going to find some? Look at energy efficient technologies. There's there's some that are not very expensive and they have good results. You know, it depends a lot on what size of your ships, what trade patterns. You know, where do you go? What do you you know? Are you chartering? Are you owning those vessels? And you know, do you have do you have cranes or you don't have cranes? Is it new fleet or not new fleet? Uh, it, it's there's so many options. And I understand that anyone coming new, it's a little bit overwhelming. But just just start little, you know, start with a little commitment, not a little, start with a commitment and then, you know, look at what is my most problematic vessel from a regulatory point of view, for example, and what can I do to fix that one? And then I'll look into the others. Do you think there is enough ambition? I see companies that are investing in flexibility. I see companies that are hedging their bets and paying through the nose so they don't have to make decisions. I see a few companies that are investing in the future in a meaningful way, but most, I would say, are in the wait and see category. Do you do you think there is a lack of ambition across the industry? No, I think that there is more as in no one wants to take the first step. You know, ship owners, we're, we're, we're so incredible uh, at not sharing information you know come on it's been years and we still have the same uh, bills of lading model that you know 150 years ago they were still in place so they haven't changed we do not like change and whenever it is the the, the ambition is actually I'm going to wait and see what my competitors do there is a very interesting paper uh, uh, published recently by the Mass McKinney Moller Center uh, called Ready, Set, Decarbonize, that actually goes through how many companies in the top 10 of each one of the segments have made pledges uh, to uh, to decarbonize. And you would be very surprised. I, I, I don't recall the number, but it was something like out of all of the companies that they looked at, 35% had made that commitment. So no, we do not have the ambition context here is that you know the need for change is obviously a matter of you know consensus at least amongst the you know the coalition of the willing uh, that you know are active with industry forums and I would certainly count Swire as as, as one of the uh, the good guys leading the debates but what I want to talk about is is how you turn that aspiration into action because it's going to require a series of changes across a value chain of which you only control a very minor part even a company as large uh, as an ex global aswire, your agency within this debate is relatively small. How do you go about balancing the need to make practical decisions, investment decisions as a company, but knowing that you are such a small part of a wider series of changes that are ahead of us? Well, I, I think it has to do with the, the uh, aspiration and the ambition of actually the, the shareholders. You know, if you have a shareholder that wants to be, you know, a, a first mover into, into green fuels, into alternative fuels, into decarbonization and do the right thing, because I really think that this is doing the right thing, then, you know, you end up, uh, it, it is such a wide uh, uh, subject, but you end up focusing or if we're going to start, if we're looking to, at alternative fuels, where are we going to start? Obviously, we have the great advantage of having two fleets, you know, the container ships fleet and uh, the bulk fleet. And we and it, it, as you can see, you know, all of the the uh, uh, 
initiatives for uh, green methanol vessels or from methanol dual fuel vessels are being uh, spearheaded by liner shipping just because you can look into supplying the methanol that you will need for your vessel. So that's actually what we have decided to do is if we're going to start where we're going to start and we are very uh, conscientious that we will have to go and source our own uh, green methanol. That is not easy. I mean, you think about that is only 20,000 tons of green methanol being produced a year. I mean, there's plenty of methanol around, but most of it is gray uh, from natural gas. So how do you shift that uh, into, you know, into what you want. And this is such a, a, a great challenge for most of the ship owners. I mean, we are very lucky that we have the interest, the commitment and in, from, from the shareholders and that we have created you know, all of the necessary baseline to actually look at it. But even with that baseline, even with the support of the shareholders, it, it is very complicated sometimes to look at all of the options or none of the options that you have available. So, you know, particularly in our case, we are, uh, you know, it's not public knowledge yet. We are looking at green methanol vessels in a very particular region. Uh, it is remote from everything that is producing green methanol at the moment. So it is not Northern Europe because we only operate uh, mainly in the Pacific uh, in, in uh, Swire shipping. Uh, and what we are looking at the moment is, you know, we are talking to three different uh, uh, methanol providers and we are assessing between the three of them, you know, which one is the rightest fit for us. So, you know, there is the established uh, uh, producer that has been producing for a long, long time, not particularly interested at this moment to shift from grain methanol to green methanol, but with a supply chain for the bunkering, because it's not just sourcing the the, the energy, it is how you're going to get it to your ship. You know? So it is it is shipping on steroids completely. So, you know, so we have the established manufacturer, we are talking to them. They do have uh, options for bunkering, for example. And then we have, you know, another solution, a startup, you know, we are not really sure how is that going to do because the underlying investment in that startup would be, you know, by us. So we would be using most of the volume. And then you start thinking from a decarbonization point of view, do I really want to uh, have a green methanol facility that is mainly just for, for our vessels. And then the third option is, you know, the methanol is there, the green methanol will be there, and but how do we get it to the country where we need it and where we're going to store it? So it, it is a true, true challenge to, to look at, uh, it's no longer the vessel, now the whole focus is on the supply chain. And, and what I see always as the main, um, uh, a challenge is that you do not know first you know will you will you order the ship first or do you order or you find your methanol first because no one takes you really seriously when you say oh you know i need this much green methanol you know if you don't have the vessels to prove it to that you are committed to to that path so it it creates quite a fair bit of 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 challenges to look at the whole uh, supply chain and wondering you know is the carbon or the, the uh, biogenic nature, because, you know, if it is not biogenic, then you don't have a green. Do you accept, you know, different colors of blue until you get to the green? So it, it is very, very challenging and not easy for any ship owner to do it on its own. And and that's really the point. You, you can't make those decisions on your own. You, we're talking specifically about 
methanol ambitions here, but we could be talking about any number of different alternatives. Yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. You could be looking at because we're not talking about just making a decision to put a different fuel in your tank. You're talking about multiple infrastructures, supply chains, procurement, the reliability of fuels that don't yet exist across supply chains that don't exist for ships that don't exist. There is a lot of variables that can go wrong with those decisions. And presumably you're also talking about the partners that you have, the uh, uh, you know the people in terms of the technology, sure, but in terms of the charterers that you're having discussions with, no doubt. I mean, how do you bring all of those conversations together in a meaningful way that isn't just sticking a finger in the air and, and wondering which way the wind is going to go? I think that it's important to have a very clear direction. And in this particular case, it is very, very clear the direction that we were given or where we would like the ships to, where would our first alternative fuel methanol vessels should start. You know, so once you had that clarity, I think if I hadn't had that guidance of this is where we're going to start and why we're going to start here and, and you know, we can go around and find the, the green methanol, I don't think that I would have been able to, you know, action in such a short period of time, you know, decide of this is where we're going to start. And and uh, what I always recommend, and you know, uh, as part of the Mass McKinney Mola Center for Zero Carbon Shipping with strategic partners, you know, you we do get support, we do get collaboration, and we do get to talk to people that are going through this uh, this. Uh, uh, journey too, that I thought it was very, very useful for me to understand, you know, how do you procure, how do you how do you convince established manufacturers of green methanol to turn into green? Because, you know, and, and if you're going to have to transport it, is it going to be transported in a methanol, in a dual fuel methanol vessel, or am I uh, clocking from an LCA point of view, all of those emissions of, of bringing that fuel back. So my green fuel will end up not being as green as I would like because I have uh, transport in the middle. Um, I, I think that it is a little bit more difficult to conceptualize the alternative fuels. I, I really, uh, there is so many different variables and I think that everyone tries what they do. You know, you do a list of things to do and you try to eliminate risk from every potential option until you you have, you know, one or two and then you look at which one is is more suitable. So we are still in the initial stage of, of sourcing that that green methanol. But if you look at from an energy efficiency point of view, you the, the, this whole collaboration of how do you prove to your charter, you know, in case of, you know, Swiabalt, very, very large uh, uh, operated fleet, you know, you are chartering a ship and imagine that you have a five-year charter. It, how are we going to convince that ship owner to, you know, invest in energy efficient technologies and how are we going to benefit from it? Because, you know, if you look at the business models that we have nowadays, you know, we the 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 ship owner doesn't have really any benefit on any savings of that fuel. So how do you going to recuperate? Obviously, the easiest one is to uh, you know we just have a higher time charter rate. But again, you know, we have to be a little bit more flexible, and there has to be uh, uh, models or or. Uh, uh, conversations to be had uh, as ship owners, as charters, operators that can push forward, you know, some of this energy efficiency technologies or alternative fuels in a way that the cost is distributed uh, across all. Now, what I see one of the 
difficulties, obviously, it is the customer's willingness to pay. So I'm not going to talk about the technology part of the vessel that in the case of methanol, it is uh, uh, quite mature and in case of ammonia is unexistent. And uh, I'm not going to talk about the energy efficiency technologies that, you know, they some of them still don't have a baseline and we don't really know if it is if there is a case for it or not there are very you know some of the you know like everything that is wind uh, um, assisted propulsion you know it, it it can be good for some ships but for other ships that have cranes definitely not not a good not a good idea at least uh, as a retrofit so you know you just have to so sorry and then you look into the the lack of energy, <laughs> all of that, and the regulatory framework that is definitely not clear enough from any ship owners. I mean, I think that it gets to a point that I do not, I think that what is important is to have a decision, not what that decision is. But once you have a decision, you have to stick to it. And, you know, I, I wish regulators were being a little bit more, uh, you know, understanding the position of the ship owners and how difficult it is to make decisions when you don't have decisions, when you don't have solutions. It's it's really, you know, quite, quite difficult. But most of all is the client's willingness to pay. Do you have clients that are willing to pay? And without that commitment, and I think that this is why it's starting by container ships, not only you know what they're operating, but the value or the cost of a change of fuel, it will be very small in the final product. So, you know, for example, is it, you know, 40p in a bag of rice that you transport if you triple your, your costs in bunkers? So, but if there is no willingness for the customers to pay, what you are is shooting ourselves on, on the foot because, you know, between us and our competitors that will be much cheaper than us, you know, who do you think is going to get the cargo? So if there is no clients willing to pay, how, how are we going to progress this? And I see that as, you know, all of the other things are very, very important. If we can try to source and if Maersk source their own green methanol and there will be other companies doing the same, that is a possibility. So it gives you light. It is possible. It can do. But the willingness to pay for other, especially for other segments, is going to be very complicated because mm. if, if you know, the big charters for dry are not willing to, you know, double, I wouldn't say double, but to have a significant increase on the time charter rate or accepting that their fuel costs are going to be much higher, then, you know, what are we investing on? You know, it's... it's. And this is, this is the key point. I mean, we can talk about the regulation, but it strikes me from what you're saying there that you are progressing this in spite of the regulation, not necessarily because of it right now, because there is such little uh, clarity there. The big conversation that I have with most of the people on the ship owning and the chartering side is that issue of, of, of are we prepared to pay? Have we got a framework as an industry where we can understand that that sharing and collaboration around investment and costs can be understood? And can we have those demand signals at an early enough stage with enough clarity and trust in that partnership that we can move ahead? And I guess it's an open question, but I mean, it strikes me that you you are having those conversations. So how are they going? You know, do do you have any trust? And um, <laughs> I'm going to try to put this in a positive way. Um, I see a lot of interest, but 
that's it. <laughs> How do we get to that next stage where it's more than just a conceptual agreement that green shipping is a good idea? How do we get to the, the money conversation? Well, I, I think that one of the things that would make a serious difference, I know that you were talking about regulatory aspects not being, I mean, we, we're, we're learning to navigate in the gray, but you know, the, the real only way to, to have a, a balanced field, not just for ship owners, but for charters too, is for those market-based measures, those carbon levies to be at the level that actually justifies the investment because then there is no difference between you coming to my ship that has you know green methanol or you going to someone else's ship it will be the same cost for you because you have a carbon levy that you have to pay so th this is where i think that uh, when when people start looking at market-based measures and look at oh you know fifty dollars a hundred dollars and i'm thinking that's not enough it has to bridge the gap of the cost of the alternative fuels and everything associated to it. I'm not talking about time. I'm really talking about the price and the amount of, of alternative fuels that you need in order to justify saying, OK, are you going to pay 10 for green or are you going to pay 10 for doing what you're doing right now? What would it take for these conversations to move beyond the general to the specific, do you think? What, what sort of partnership agreement would you need to be talking about for this to become a more tangible discussion? Um, well, being the cargo owner with a lot of pressure from their own end customers, I think it is where it has to go. So it is us as customers, you know, you and me, that, that need to, to uh, continue to select, is it green shipping that I want? Is it, you know, what? how do you put the pressure? Also, financial markets are very, very strong uh, buyers towards that they should have a strong bias towards ESG. They are already evaluated from an ESG criteria and they sh should continue to do so. But also look at, you know, no longer a sustainability report uh, should be, you know, a nice thing to have. It should be an, a license to operate, as in if you are not a responsible uh, company or if you're not looking at ESG, then you definitely should not be <clears throat> in, in any industry, not shipping. Obviously, I am very conscious that I'm that again. I work for a large ship owner that is very committed to to decarbonization. But what happens to the owners that are a couple of ships, three ships, four ships? You know, how how do we make sure that they are not left behind and and that we uh, give them an opportunity to exist? Because it is not fair that out of resources, and I'm not talking just about money uh, out of people resources that people will not be able to follow the path that it is being dictated by regulation. And, and I, I've said recently to one of my colleagues, regulators don't care about cost. They care about how do you do things. When I have these conversations, uh, I'm having them generally with the large ship owners, as you say, I'm having them with the large charterers, Trafigura, Cargill, you know, the people that are active within uh, organizations like the Global Maritime Forum, like the uh, coalition of uh, vessel owners and vessel operators that are, are trying to put these ideas forward to the wider industry. My question, I guess, is, is that small amount at the top going to be enough to create a gravitational pull that takes the rest of this very fragmented industry with us? Unless we not forget, as has been mentioned on this podcast numerous times, the average ship owner owns just five and a half ships. You know, for all the uh, heft that Swire provides, 
you alone and your partners are not going to be enough to turn this industry around. Totally, totally agree. I mean, not just just us. You know, we if we compare to some of the strategic partners of of the Maersk McKinney Muller Center, you know, you will see that a very large number of, of of ship owners are there, but also other members of the industry. I think that all that this collaborative platforms do, uh, and sorry, not all that they do, but one of the things that it is uh, great that they do is showing the path. I mean, this is the objective that uh, not just the MMMC, but also the uh, the Global Centre for Maritime Decarbonisation here in Singapore. All they're trying to do is find partners or find owners that are keen, that, that think the same way and say, OK, let's for 10 minutes, let's forget about the rest of the world and let's do it ourselves because at least and, and this is why I think collaboration is so important is not only sharing the risk but also sharing an appetite for for a greener future so when you when you share that uh, you you are you know that it won't make a difference but you know that you're showing a path that is showing that it can be done and I think that this can-do attitude of, of some of the large ship owners is, is really about that, is, is about we, sh we want to prove that it is possible. And if we prove that it's possible in, in a, both the GCMD and MMC, they publish everything. And, and there is a lot of discussions about how we're going to bring the rest of the industry with us. But if you think that we're talking, there's no ships at the moment on order for <clears throat> green methanol there are not from liner companies if i am not mistaken i'm definitely just confirmed and because it is so difficult so you know why uh, why not create green cargo for example as in you know how from from a bulk point of view as in days is there energy there can we have a ship but then what you're really doing is changing the trading patterns of trump and is it going to look the same in 20 years time and i don't think so I think that our our model of tramping, of minimizing ballast legs and maximize efficiency of the vessels is going to change. And there we will leave it for another week. My thanks to Susanna for an enlightening conversation that I think really highlights the scale of the challenges still yet to be fully understood by large waves of the industry. No doubt it is a topic that we are going to continue to discuss on the podcast. We will be back next week, and our market editor, Michelle Vizi-Bockman, has a treat in store, so make sure you tune in on Friday. For now, though, thank you for listening, and have a good